Hello and welcome back to the Legal Geeks. I'm here as always with my blogging buddy, Joshua Gilliland. How are you, Josh? I am outstanding, Jessica. How are you? <laughs> I am good, and I'm excited to talk to you about a movie that I know nothing about, the Godzilla movie, the latest Godzilla remake. Um, I know there are monsters. I know a little bit about Godzilla. I've heard a little bit about the, some of the plot twists. It sounds like a pretty good movie, but we're not here to talk the movie. We're here to talk about how you found a monster movie and found all kinds of legal issues in it. So I want you to explain to me what some of these legal issues are. First, starting with our first love, of course. Well, geeks were our first love. Our first legal love, e-discovery. How is there an e-discovery issue in Godzilla? Well, the story begins in 1999, and I was in law school in 1999. And Me in too. That, yep. Yes, we are that vintage. <laughs> and so, like a fine wine, we've aged well. Now, with that being said, back in the day, I backed things up on zip disks. This was slightly before thumb drives started coming out. I remember a few folks had them, but it was at that time I was backing everything up on zip disks. Okay. And characters are in Japan, and Brian Cranston's character is a manager at a nuclear power plant. He has some concerns, and he's backing up all of his data on zip disks. Okay. Nuclear incident. And now he's the crazy guy trying to expose whatever conspiracy took place. And ah. he, 2014 gets back to his old home, which is in Japan, which has had some weather, typhoons, hurricanes, earthquakes, all that stuff. So the house is structurally compromised, and a nuclear reactor went up nearby. All right, so a few problems. Yeah, so you think like EMP, you think anything electronic would be fried, and generally speaking, leaving out any type of media for 15 years, would that actually work? Right. Well, fast forward that we're on the fictional USS Saratoga CVN-88, and our carriers don't go that high right now because <laughs> we're building the new Enterprise, which is the Ford class, and we're just getting the Ford operational. And before that, we have the George H.W. Bush, and we have the Reagan, so they're we're naming them after presidents nowadays, with the exception of the one that's named after a senator. Okay. And the Nimitz, of course, is named after Nimitz. But that's not right. important right now. Admiral is, Nimitz, I know that. Yes. Yes. An amazing man. That being said, when you look at what you got and go, so we have a scientist sitting on a nuclear aircraft carrier with 15-year-old zip disks, and conveniently, this aircraft carrier has a zip drive on board. Oh my, of course. Naturally, hey, that was lucky. Glad eBay delivered. <laughs> Maybe it was an Amazon I don't know. Whatever, they had a zip drive with them, and he was accessing the data on the zip drive. Now, instantly, because this is just how I think while I'm watching the movie, enjoying my licorice and my popcorn, <laughs> that data would probably not be reasonably accessible. That's They're right. So Rule 26 is racing through my head as the USS Saratoga is steaming east back towards the United States and going, would that actually work? Could you actually get the data off of there? And I don't know if you actually could, if any of my forensic buddies could actually recover zip drives that have been left out in a compromised house for 15 years 
near a nuclear incident. Yeah, I have had cases where um, data that's been through a lot less has been claimed to be, you know, accidentally destroyed. So if this data can survive, I'm going to have to go back and check out some of those claims of accidental destruction of data. Well, that I went to one of the forensic shows and they had a wonderful device for those who are really hardcore about their data destruction policy. Big box, kind of like a large TV set. And the hard drive goes into the box close, kind of like the Ghostbusters containment system, you push a button and an EMP goes off inside, nuking the hard drive. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes data dead. That's not coming back. So if an EMP went off, would those zip disks still work? I don't know. I don't think so. But that's that was the big e-discovery issue that I saw very, very early going, I don't know. I that don't know. seems unrealistic. That's yeah. special. I'm the, with you on the monster. Yeah, you know, it's bad when I go, I'm I'm down with the monster. I'm totally down with the monster. <laughs> I but this data thing that I know about, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. Well, I think another unrealistic part of the movie also gave you some um, thoughts on constitutional issues that could take place after Godzilla. So San Francisco gets flattened again. Now, I was not alive in 1906, but I've done my homework on it because, hey, I grew up in the Bay Area. And for everyone on the East Coast who thinks we have earthquake season and you don't want to visit, you're wrong. It's not like having hurricane season. They come occasionally, they knock things down, and then we learn to live again. Oh, I still don't want to be there for one. <clears throat> yeah, it's go go have a hurricane instead or a tornado or any other ice storm that takes out power. There's pretty much no safe place on the planet that isn't susceptible to weather of some kind. That being said, in 1906, when San Francisco got knocked down because of the earthquake and the fire and everything that happened, the mayor declared martial law and also stated that looters would be shot on site. Don't know how effective it was, and we kind of covered up how many people were killed in 1906. Wow! They, you know, they only said like three to five hundred when it was more like in the thousands because they didn't want to scare off people from moving west. <gasps> wow! So there was a little of that going on as well. But like, eh, we're just going to downplay the number killed. San Francisco looks like 1906. By the end of the movie, there's some buildings still standing, but you know, a lot of them took some pretty serious hits and there are two very dead monsters that are radioactive lying around one in a building and one just off the ferry building that that's just kind of messy. So it's like, how do we take care of that? Declaring martial law would be a very realistic thing to do in that situation. And probably the, several days to a week after the event because the city's flattened. Tens of thousands of people would be missing. Law enforcement is at its max. The military would have to be called in. And we have rules about martial law because it is not compatible with freedom. Right. We had a revolution because we are so not down with this sort of thing. So our rules on martial law go back to some Civil War cases, and there's some good World War II cases as well. Now, you can declare martial law in the event of an invasion, civil war, 
and the courts also have to be closed. Something so major has to be going on that the normal justice system in the United States would not be working. Okay. And giant monsters knocking down buildings and a nuclear bomb going off and all that other stuff happening would probably meet those factors. That probably would, yes. So so taking that into consideration, we could go, all right, we don't have any open courts. And that goes back to the Civil War cases, uh, McGillan, I believe it is, uh, dealing with, okay, are the courts open or not? Do we have a working system or not? The World War II case, which was a Supreme Court case, that's also one of those you just want to line up and salute because it's a Justice Black opinion, and Justice Murray has an awesome concurrence in there. It's like you read and it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Black has some awesome opinions out there, and, and this is a fun one. So the basic facts were, are it's Hawaii. And December 7th, 1941 rolls around. We have the attack on Pearl Harbor, and everyone's freaked out because we have over 2,000 people dead. Everyone's terrified of invasion, and things aren't going well. Right. So Congress passes a law, I think that week, like the next day, December 8th, and enabling the military, excuse me, the territorial governor of Hawaii, because Hawaii is not yet a state, to get this appoint a military governor to repel invasions, which the territorial governor does immediately. Yep, we're good. Wow. Here you are because that's, we're fighting a war at that point. Sure. So the two cases that go up to the Supreme Court, one's a stockbroker who eight months after the attack is accused of embezzlement and he is tried and sentenced in the military court. Oh my God. The other is a guy who gets into a brawl, and it's nice when the Supreme Court justice says this was a brawl, <laughs> with, a, with two Marines by a base. So neither of these guys are actually in the military, so they shouldn't be subject to military law. But they're tried in military courts, uh, even though we're at the point when some of the courts are already open, and the movie theaters are back open, and Hawaii is functional again as a society. Right. So the Supreme Court goes like, no, no, we, we, we're, this is not okay. And there, there's some great, great quotes, and some of them go back to the Civil War cases uh, with McGillan. And let me, let me just pull it up here. So let me grab the laptop So I sit back in the uh, uh, nice chair here. Milit- the lap of luxury. Yes, it's nice to be dog-sitting. For as this court has said before, the military should always be kept in subjection to the laws of the country to which it belongs, and that he is no friend to the republic who advocates the contrary. The established principles of every free people is that the law shall alone govern, and to it the military must always yield. And that's from Doe v. Johnston, excuse me, Johnson. Uh, there are other parts of the quote as well, looking back to the Civil War cases. So we look back further. And it is an amazing read, especially with civil liberty involving the establishment of a military government over recently occupied enemy territory. It has had emphatically declared that civil liberty and this kind of martial law cannot endure the antagonism is irreconcilable and in conflict one 
or the other must perish. Wow. So that goes, that's one of the Civil War cases. And then Justice Black kind of puts the nail in the coffin and says, no. So nice. this, this is not okay. And there's a, it's, a, it's a really neat read historically and understanding what was going on. And it's a little, uh, it's interesting because it's, I think, pre-Korematsu or right around that time. Oh, and which is, of course, the case uh, ruling on the Japanese internment during, or internment of Japanese-American people during World War II. Which the Solicitor General at the time lied, flat out lied to the Supreme Court about the risk. Because part of the reason why Korematsu turned out the way it did With was, the Supreme Court upholding the internment. Yes, because the Solicitor General argued there was no way for us to figure out who was loyal or not. And that was a lie. So they could have narrowed it down. They could have figured out who was a threat and who was not a threat. And at least one, and that's a five, four opinion. Yeah. Uh, at least one justice is on record saying like, if I had known that I would have voted the other way. That is a shameful decision. Tying in Korematsu and the internments to our geek audience, of course, George Takei was actually as a child in one of those internment camps with his family. He talks about that a lot. And rightfully so. Back to Godzilla. Yeah. So back to, um, we were talking about, you talked about San Francisco and like mm-hmm. dead monsters rotting in San Francisco. So, you know, that's always one of the things I think about during, you know, the Avengers or any of these movies is who has to clean up these messes afterwards? Like, how does that get done? So who's responsible for the cleanup of San Francisco? Ironically, San Francisco. Oh. Yeah, so it would suck. And now granted, there's no way on earth the federal government and the state of California could go, you kids are on your own. Good (laughs) luck. But cases involving airplanes crashing and in disasters of that magnitude, kind of the acts of God uh, and nature type of thing going like, okay, that's the function of government the city would be responsible for its own emergency services. Now, because the damage is so massive, horrifically massive, there's no way around that, that you can say, good luck, San Francisco. Yeah. They would have to get involved. On the flip side, San Francisco, I mean, this would be on par with New Orleans and Katrina. Mm -hmm. Probably see an exodus from San Francisco. Now, I don't know where they would go if they would head further south, like in Phillips, Silicon Valley more. Yeah. Or if they would, people would target Monterey and go like, hey, it's foggy close enough and start you know, wanting to build down there. Or if they would literally scatter about the country. Huh. So it's fascinating. What is that called? A diaspora? Yeah, something like that. I'm, I'm not... I'm not positive, but something like that. And, the, you know, putting on the political scientist hat, California votes blue pretty much because of the Bay Area and Los Angeles. And the Bay Area has the highest concentration of voters in the state, and the vast majority of them are Democrats. And so if you have the highest concentration of Democrats leave because three monsters took out the city, and And if they moved to another blue state or another part of California, it wouldn't matter. Right. If they leave the state, California would start losing congressmen because that would shift the population. Right. It would also possibly 
shift the color of the state depending on if they left, which is fascinating. Now, if Texas suddenly got an influx of blue state voters who were like moving to Austin. Or even Dallas. A lot of California folks moved to Dallas. I mean, it could be enough. It could start shifting to Texas. It'd be pretty ironic if Texas became a blue state and California became a red state as a result of Godzilla. It would be weird. And so, but that's just one of those things that you think about. It's like, okay, you know, well, it, now granted, if they moved up to Portland or something like that in Seattle, because it's similar, they could say similar climates, that, that sort of deal. Um, those are already pretty much blue states. So right. that, there wouldn't be a change there. There possibly would be an increase in congressmen. Yes. The, the, and electoral the, votes. Yep. Yep. So that would be fascinating to study if they even acknowledge it you know, when the sequel comes out. <laughs> but you know, God, God knows if the writers actually think about this. I mean, when you look at the way the nuclear bomb goes off in the city, which I, the federal government, I don't think, would have any liability for the fact the nuclear bomb went off that, that they tried to use. Okay. More on that in a second. But it, it's fascinating to, to think about. Now, well, so what about this nuclear explosion? Who's responsible for that and cleaning that up? I don't think anyone's responsible for it because despite the fact the military wanted to use the nuke to lure the monsters out to sea and then detonate it, and since it was supposed to be a megaton weapon, they thought the shockwave and being up close would be enough to kill all three of the creatures. Mm-hmm. Well, the monsters feed on radiation, and so they, they kind of chew on it like a, like a dog would a chew toy, and then they use it with this nest with all these creatures that are absorbing radiation from it. Oh, my. So when they realize that we can't defuse the bomb after they get it back, what do we do here? Let's put it onto a pilot boat and put it out to sea. Now, a pilot boat can do about 20 knots. Some might be able to go faster, but 20, that's kind of like the market value of these things. And a pilot boat goes out, puts a master onto a cargo ship, and the master brings the cargo ship into the local port. So they're designed to go fast. So they put it on a pilot boat, which is conveniently like point-and-click navigation, which that would be super nice. And not really, but that's, that's what they had. And with like three minutes left, you know, he heads out to sea for this megaton nuclear weapon to go off, thinking that's going to save the day. And I'm a sailor. I'm a lawyer. Not a nuclear weapons expert, but my dad's good at blowing stuff up because he was at Lockheed. So, ah. so thinking about megatons going off, how much radiation would need to be absorbed to weaken the plutonium, if it was a plutonium bomb or a uranium bomb, I'm not sure which, but whatever, how much would have to be absorbed to weaken the bomb so even if it only got two miles off the coast, because leaving the ferry building or uh, the marina, wherever they were, to go out past the Golden Gate, that's like two miles right there. You know, yeah. You know, you're not going to get out to the super, maybe. So at best, you're going to get out like a mile before the thing goes off, which really isn't enough for the city of San Francisco to survive the nuclear blast if it was at full strength. And then you have a nuclear radioactive tsunami that's going to hit, washing far up into San Francisco itself, down the bay, and would eventually radiate across the course, 
across the Pacific, just as the Japanese tsunami did. And that would be interesting to know what kind of damage it would have there. But look, well, but back to the legal part. So who's responsible for cleaning up that mess? The feds don't have any responsibility for damage from a nuclear explosion. Holding from cases from Nevada where they tested uh-huh. nuclear weapons. When somebody tried suing saying, your nuclear bomb caused cracks in my house. Yeah. The court said, no, they, you can't sue the federal government for that. Governmental immunity. It's a nice thing. Yeah, so, and it was necessary to do for fighting the giant monsters. Yeah. So it was necessary to do, but I don't think they would actually uh, have any liability for it. Now, Is the be, San Fran's back on the hook? Uh, yeah, but I don't think any sitting president, governor, senators, congressmen would let that one slide. They would have to pass emergency legislation to go, we're going to go clean this up. True. And that's what we've done after disasters. And so it'd be stupid political suicide for any political party to go like, you're on your own. Right. They would have to step up and take care of it. But legally, if homeowners in the Marina District or Knob Hill decided to sue the federal government for a nuclear bomb going off and perhaps lowering the value of their property... I don't think they'd be able to recover against the federal government. Wow. Well, that's what happens when a giant monster attacks your city. That's why I like being here in Wisconsin. I don't think we have to worry too much about giant monsters. So God knows what's in those lakes, Jessica, waiting, <laughs> lurking. Just giant muskies and sturgeon, that's all. Yeah, but one compounded with the radiation. They could that's, crave, yes. They could crave giant angry musky. Yeah, they could crave human flesh. What will you do? <laughs> Well, Josh, thank you. I had no idea that Godzilla would bring up so many historical and legal issues. I'm like, you know, everybody should see it. They should show it in school, accompanied by an instructional video from you, of course, to uh, emphasize all the fascinating aspects. You know, I don't know if we could sell that. I don't know if Common Core goes that far. (laughs) And if it did, you know, there'd probably be some creationists that would have a problem with it as well. So, you know, God knows. God knows what would happen with that. So I would say... I think instead of a director's commentary, we're going to start doing commentaries by Josh, exploring the uh, historical, legal, and political science aspects of the movies. That would be hysterical to actually do. That really would. Instead of mystery science theater 3000, it's like, yeah, legal geek science theater or something i don't know (laughs) that would be that would be hysterical and i'm sure that we could have a uh, class or two at at, at multiple law schools that would be totally down with doing that there you go we just need to find those classes you pay for some good travel accommodations we'll do it outstanding well jessica and america stay geeky and stay geeky thanks josh